Hi everyone and welcome to another episode of the Motherkind podcast with me your host Zoe Blasky where each week I chat about all things motherhood and well-being. My mission with this podcast is to help you reconnect to you, to feel happier, more joyful, calmer and that little bit kinder to yourself because I think life as a mum in this hectic modern world is hard enough as it is. I believe becoming the happiest, most alive version of ourselves is the most important and inspiring thing we can do for our children. Hi everyone and welcome to this week's episode of the Motherkind podcast with me, your host Zoe Blasky. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for pressing play. Let me ask you a question. Do you know the importance of your gut health? Is gut health, in fact, the key to health and happiness? Well, I'm hoping that this episode is going to answer both those questions for you. And before you think, Zoe, I'm far too busy to worry about this as well. Dr. Megan Rossi, our guest today, is a new mum herself. So everything she shares is practical and achievable. Dr. Megan Rossi is the founder of The Gut Health Doctor. She's also a registered dietitian and nutritionist. She has an award-winning PhD in gut health. She's also a leading research fellow at King's College London. She's also set up The Gut Health Clinic in London, and she's created her own gut health food company called BioMe, which I highly recommend. I have their porridge most mornings. She's also got two books, her first called Eat Yourself Happy, and her latest book is called Eat More, Live Well. So what are you going to learn in this episode and why are you going to keep listening? Well, let me tell you, you are going to learn everything that you need to know about your gut health, including the microbiome and why that is so important for our children too. You're going to learn about the connection between your gut and the rest of your body from your mood to your fitness, and really importantly, your immune system. You're also going to learn about the gut-brain axis, which explores the gut's impact on your mental health, which is absolutely fascinating and a real passion of mine as well. Here is the episode. I hope you really enjoy it. As ever, please do share it with someone that you want to experience more happiness, better immunity, better sleep, and all the benefits that Dr. Megan tells us about of looking after our guts. So please do share it. Here it is. Oh, Megan, welcome. I'm so excited to be chatting to you this morning. I've been following you, lurking, stalking you, absorbing all your wisdom and knowledge on Instagram for a long time. So I cannot wait for this chat this morning. Thanks for being here. Well, thanks for having me. You know, gut health is such a passion area. So I love sharing it with as many people as possible. How did you get into it? Yeah, well, when I started, you know, 10 old years ago, it certainly wasn't the most sexy of topics. Now it's a lot more on trend, but I guess my first encounter or conscious encounter with the gut started from a bit of a negative place in that I lost my grandma to bowel cancer. And that was in my final year studying nutrition and dietetics. You know, we'd learned a little bit about the gut, but we hadn't really touched on it that much. So yeah, I really hated it, you know, for putting it through the chemo, the cancer, and then obviously taking a life later. But when I then started working as a dietitian, both in the hospital setting with all different types of conditions, whether it was mental health issues, different types of diabetes, you know, different cancers, et cetera. But also I was very fortunate to be the nutritionist for the Australian Olympic synchronized swimming team. And what I found so striking is that these people from all very different backgrounds were coming to me complaining of the gut. And I thought, gosh, what is it about this organ? It's haunting me. And that's when I decided, you know, I owe it to my grandma and to my patients to find out more about kind of this undiscovered organ. And that's when I embarked on a PhD to try and understand more about whether we nourish the gut through the right nutrition, whether that can improve the health of not just our gut, but far-reaching areas like our mental health and our heart health and our metabolism, et cetera. And that really changed everything for me. You know, it became so clear that actually if we just learn to nourish the gut and look after it, it will look after us so much so. But hey, if we neglect it, it can be pretty nasty. Let's get right back to basics. What is gut health and how does someone know if they have a healthy gut or not? That's a really important question about what it is because 
I think a lot of people have heard about it in the media headlines every second day, but what it is exactly is not often communicated that accurately. So gut health relates the functioning of our nine meter digestive tract, this tube that delivers food from entry all the way to exit. So that nine meters that's coiled up in each and every one of us is classified as gut health. This organ is incredibly important for three key reasons. The first one is digestion. So no matter how healthy the food we put into our body is, if we don't have good gut lining, that food can't get from our gut, from that hollow tube into our actual body. So that's where the transport happens. So to really get the most out of our food and maximize our digestion, we need to have good gut health. So that's the first one. The second one, really important moment, 70% of our immune system lives along that nine meter digestive tract. So good gut health and immune health go hand in hand. But it's this third element, which has really brought the fame to this concept of gut health over the last couple of years. And that is that we contain trillions of bacteria along that nine meter digestive tract. And it's these bacteria that is doing things like communicating with our brain, impacting our hormones, our appetite regulation, et cetera. It's absolutely fascinating. And then your question about, yeah, how do we know? How do we assess if we've got good gut health? And Annoyingly, there is no single measure that determines how healthy someone's gut is. So when I was writing my first book, Eat Yourself Healthy, I was thinking, how can I encapsulate you know, all the evidence to give people a bit of an idea? So I developed this 10-question assessment which I can put the link down to the bottom so everyone can access that. And it gets you thinking about the different areas. So it's like, how often do you get sick? Do you get gut symptoms? Are you on a restrictive diet? How often are you stressed? And it gets you to score your gut health from a scale of zero to 20. So you can kind of see where you are on that spectrum and then target the areas where you may be a little bit more vulnerable. It's just absolutely fascinating, isn't it? And one area that I really wanted to dive into with you was around the gut microbiome and the link with hormones because I think as mothers and women it's just absolutely fascinating particularly for me to understand that link a bit more so can you break down how does what we eat impact the microbiome and how does the microbiome impact how we experience our daily lives how stressed we feel serotonin comes into a play doesn't it can you unpack that because I think As busy mothers, and I'd love to get this take from you as well, it's so easy to forget that we have so much more power over how we feel by what we eat, as well as all the other things that we might be doing to make ourselves feel less stressed. Absolutely. And I think that is one reason why I get so excited about sharing the science around gut health, because I want people to be empowered by this information that actually so much of their health and happiness is in their own hands. In fact, in terms of chronic conditions, which is something which is obviously on the increase and it's affecting so many of us, only 20% of those chronic conditions is down to genetics alone. The rest of the 80% is linked to things we can control, including our gut microbiome. So for those who are thinking, oh, look, this is just something that runs my family or, you know, it's just, I'm going through this hard time. Actually try to feel empowered by the fact that making small changes, particularly to your diet can have massive results. And that is because our gut microbes are simply determined by what we feed it. So we know that people who eat as many different types of plant-based foods in their diet have better gut health than those who eat the same sorts of plants on repeat. And that's one of the key concepts I talk about in the new book, Eat More, Live Well, where it's about simple ways to really just add in a few extra plants with no extra time or extra cost. Because certainly as a new mom, I appreciate that every second is so important. So it's doing things like instead of just getting the single veg at the supermarket, get the multi-pack of veg. Each different type contains different types of plant chemicals that feed different gut bacteria. So you need to think about it a way where we want as many different skills in our body from the bacteria as possible. So to get as many different bacteria, we need to feed them a really diverse range of plants because they thrive off different types. So that essentially is the key link between how our diet impacts our gut bacteria. Now, the important point around getting as many plants as you can, it doesn't need to be only plants. And that's one of the key principles I talk about this dieting or this eating approach called the diversity diet. It's mostly plants, but not only plants. You can still include some of your animal foods in there. That's completely fine for your gut health, as long as the base of it, so most of it comes from plants. And, you know, I talk about how, again, it's about flavoring and I'm sure we'll go into this, particularly with kids. They're like, oh, I don't like plants. Well, actually, 
there's a world of difference between like soggy boiled sprouts and actually roasted sprouts with a little bit of garlic and a little bit of ginger kind of thrown in there, some extra virgin olive oil. It's about how you prep it, but also our taste buds actually change and evolve if we let them. And a lot of that has to do with our microbes. We not only have them, you know, lower down that digestive tract, we also have millions of bacteria in our mouths, which if we start to eat more plants, they adapt to that. And actually they then kind of help us crave plants in a way. It's like, it's magical, but it's all science. (laughs) So that is essentially, yeah, how people are going, oh, I don't really like plants. Actually, you know, you can teach yourself to enjoy them and crave them. And I've done it on not just my husband, who used to be very, very anti-plants, but, you know, hundreds of my clients have now been like, oh my God, actually, yeah, I do want to have more plants in my diet. So that then in turn can improve your gut health. Now, in terms of these gut microorganisms, it's thought to be, I guess, three ways which they can start to influence things like our mental health. So one is via the immune system. So given that the bacteria and the immune system go hand in hand, if the bacteria sense some stress, they activate the immune system and they produce inflammatory chemicals, kind of like an alarm system, which sets off the brain. That's one alarm system. The second one, you can kind of think of it like the postal service where the bacteria, they eat what we eat and they then produce chemicals from that as a, like just a waste product that then can get into our blood. And some of them can pass that blood brain barrier. So kind of the postal service is how it can talk to the brain. And the third one is like a mobile phone where the bacteria can actually stimulate nerves, which then go up and talk to the brain. So they're the three ways that we think the gut is really talking to the brain. And the amazing hard research studies have shown that nourishing the gut through the diverse range of plants, not only plants though, remember you can include things like, you know, fermented dairy, oily fish, all of which I talk about in the book about how to just make a few tweaks here and there to up the plants actually has a significant improvement in people's mental health. And I see it in clinic all the time. It's really, really powerful stuff. And then the other thing, you know, you touched on about the hormones. So we know particularly with estrogen, our microbes are really important with the regulation of estrogen. So the bacteria produce certain types of enzymes, which help recycle the estrogen levels in our body. And we know that our gut microbiome is being linked with things like PCOS, even things like going through the menopause. There's just incredible research coming out, just really highlighting how connected and important looking after this inner community really is for the rest of our body. It's just so fascinating, isn't it? Because I guess when we look at language, you know, we've known this intuitive link. And I guess ancient traditions like Ayurveda and others have talked about this. You mentioned a landmark study was only, what was it, 10, 15 years ago. I'm wondering why you think it's taken so long, because we talk about my gut instinct, you know, I can't stomach that. We've always known, I think, this link between the brain and the gut and how we feel and what we eat. And yet the science, you know, you're at the forefront of that. Why has it taken so long? And what do you think is next? Essentially, it's because of technology. So we didn't have the technology to actually identify those trillions of bacteria living in our gut. We knew there was a connection there, you know, the gut feelings, the experience everyone gets, you know, butterflies in their tummy. We thought that the key way that that was happening is via these nerves. So the nerves is hundreds of millions of nerves that connect the brain to the gut. So we've known about that for quite some time, but this new key player, and that is these microorganisms living in there. And that is what's really exploded. And because they're microscopic, we couldn't actually determine who was in there what they were actually doing and why they were so important until about 10, 15 years ago when they developed the technology that allowed us to identify them based on like a fingerprint, like a human's got a fingerprint. Each bacteria has got their own fingerprint. And without kind of blowing people's minds too much, because I think for some people, this is new to like, oh my God, I've got bacteria. Let me just digest that. But actually we also have viruses, fungi such as yeast and parasites actually living together in our gut. And it's this collection that we call scientifically our gut microbiome or our GM. And I think what's next is that we're identifying more about what the virus component, the microbiome component, which is like the yeast, the fungi component is actually doing. Because at the moment we're just fixating and focusing on the bacteria, which is kind of enough because there's trillions in there. But we're then understanding actually how do they interact with the viruses and the parasites, which actually 
like I said, look after us together. So people don't need to be, you know, freaked out, particularly I think with the C virus, COVID-19, a lot of people are like, oh my God, all viruses are bad. Actually, a lot of them are thought to potentially be beneficial and, you know, help our body out. So it's this whole other world of understanding these invisible microorganisms and how they're influencing each other. And then in turn, I think that will open up this whole world of like personalized health and personalized nutrition based on the different types we have in us. But at the moment, you'll see companies starting to sell these microbiome tests, you know, send your poop away, get a test back. But actually, I wouldn't waste your money on them at the moment. Like at King's College, where we do our research, we do collect store samples, but the commercialization of them is just not ready for that translation yet. So I'd say hold off, wait a couple more years until the research is caught up and then you might want to consider spending your money there. I'm glad you said that because I actually was about to get one for my six-year-old because she has a few sort of not bad, but just behavioral differences. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to start with her gut health and just see if there's anything there. And I was about to pay, I think it was like 450 pounds. It's extortionate. And I actually held off because I was like, I'm not going to be able to afford to pay that before Christmas. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll pay that in January, but now perhaps I won't. Yeah. I mean, I see so many people in clinic where they've done it and they've paid for these tests and, you know, I have to break it to them. I'm like, yeah, this is quite interesting, but it's not going to change my clinical recommendations. It's not the full picture. So these tests don't identify all the different microorganisms. And also really interesting is that identical bacteria can act very different in different people's guts based on the environment and very different bacteria can actually do some of the same reactions. They can metabolize, you know, some of the same hormones and vitamins and produce different things. So these tests, yeah, they're too primitive to give us tangible guidance on how we can intervene on them. So, you know, the key thing that we're seeing is trying to really diversify the plants, get in as many different types. And again, that's all coming back to the simple strategies, you know, that I talk about in the book where it's whatever you're cooking for dinner, just think, hey, what's one extra plant I can put in there? And when I talk about plants, it's not just your boring leafy greens. There's actually these six different plant-based food groups, which I call them the super six. So you have your whole grains, your nuts and seeds, your fruit, your veggies, your beans and your pulses, and your herbs and your spices. So it's about trying to get in each different type because as I was harping on before, each different type actually provides our body with different types of nutrients and in turn different types of food for our gut bacteria, which is why a lot of these restrictive diets we're actually seeing can actually be quite damaging for the gut because they're cutting out whole food groups, whole plant food groups where these people are then losing out on the diversity of their gut bacteria. And then they don't have all the skills that the bacteria could potentially have to look after them. And I love that in the book. And I've already started doing actually just thinking, you know, what could I throw on top that could increase the diversity here? And we have your bio and me porridge in the morning as well that we love. You've given such a good grounding in, you know, what it is and the science. And I could geek out on that for hours. But for someone listening, thinking, well, I guess there'd be two groups, wouldn't there? Well, you tell me there might be some mothers listening who have presenting gut issues like IBS or diarrhea or bloating. And then there might be mothers like me where actually I'm not presenting with any of those, but I definitely feel stressed sometimes. I definitely, you know, would want better immunity. Or maybe there are other groups, I'm sure there are, but maybe those two broad categories, starting with the one with the presenting gut issue, what could someone do and how would you support them in clinic? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, for those who are presenting with gut issues, you know, you are the exact reason why I wrote Eat Yourself Healthy, the first book, because I know that seeing a gut specialist dietitian in the NHS got waiting list of like 12 months. I know how debilitating having gut issues are, particularly, you know, when you've got kids to look after, you can't go and lay in bed if you've got a lot of tummy cramps and you're bloated and all those sort of stuff. So I know how debilitating it is. So in the book, I essentially get you to identify and kind of record your key gut symptoms. So is it that you're getting tummy pain? Is it that actually you're getting constipated or you've got diarrhea? And it's important to identify what's your key gut symptom, because then I go through in flow charts, similar, like kind of my brain dump as I would do with someone in clinic and look at the different evidence-based strategies that could work for you. For example, if it's constipation, you know, we know the first 
first line is things like, are you getting enough dietary fiber? Are you getting enough fluid? Now, most people who I see in clinic are like, yes, ticking those boxes. So we move on to the next level and it's, are you getting enough of the right types of fiber? So psyllium husk is a really great types of soluble fiber, which is really laxating. So I talk about the psyllium prescription there. For other people, actually, there's really good evidence for having two kiwi fruit a day to help with the laxation. You know, there's all these other different evidence-based strategies, about six different ones that I get people to systematically try to see which one works for their gut because everyone's gut's different. But actually for some people, it's not about their diet. It's actually about their pooping position. And the Western toilet really just doesn't help at all. We should actually be pooping in more of a squatting position. So I talk through, you know, the positioning of that. And then also there's clinical evidence around doing the specific bowel massage. So I talk through all the different evidence-based strategies that's worth you spending some time on to get on top of your constipation. Similarly, do the same with, you know, reflux or whether it's bloating. There's some really interesting things like, you know, bloating actually has been on the increase because a lot of us live in our gym gear. You know, we think they're comfy, but actually that compression, if you've already got an underlying sensitive gut, can actually cause this rebound effect and contribute to bloating because it traps in and the wind there. Also things like having too many smoothies can contribute to bloating. So there's many different strategies in there. So it's about identifying what's your key symptom. And then I also talk about these conditions, this umbrella term called functional gut disorders. And one of them is irritable bowel syndrome. So I talk about the definition for that. And if you meet that criteria, one of the really important things, if people are getting gut issues, it is really important that you go to your GP and you get a quick test for things like celiac disease and inflammatory bowel disease, because sometimes these gut symptoms can mask these other kind of diseases. So it's important to get them ruled out. So I talk about what are the sorts of things you should ask your doctor, what sorts of information you should take to your doctor, because they only have 10 minutes to see you. My husband's an NHS GP. So I got him to help me with that section. I was like, if they want the most out of a session, what should someone bring to you? So I've kind of gone through those bits there because there is now really good evidence to help people get on top of gut symptoms. I think historically it was thought if you've got a grumpy gut, it's like, nah, you know, you don't have cancer, get over it. But actually we now understand more about the mechanisms and therefore we've got the strategies that can really help make meaningful differences in people's lives. So definitely check that out. Now for the other people who want to optimize their gut health and improve more systemic things, things like the mental health, the hormone regulation. I guess that's more of you know the reason why I wrote a second book, Eat More, Live Well. It kind of zooms out and speaks to everyone who wants to eat in a way that's aligned with how their bodies and the gut microbes work. And for them, it's about, like I said, following these principles that I call the diversity diet. Now, it's categorically not about dieting. So it's not about restrictions. It's quite the opposite. It's underpinned by five key principles. And honestly, if you follow these five principles, not only does the Clients, but I've you know seen it with hundreds of my clients. It really will have significant improvements in whatever health goal you have, whether that is about you know losing a bit of weight, whether that is about improving your mental health, getting on top of your hormone control, even some skin outcomes. We've certainly seen in clinic by following just five principles. First one is having mostly plants. As I mentioned before, that doesn't necessarily mean only plants. And for those who are like we mentioned about the taste thing, you know there is the science which shows your taste buds evolve. And I certainly have been using that with Archie where constant exposure to the diversity, actually, you then start to get more adjusted to that and eventually start to crave it after about four weeks. And then also about just working with some simple flavors. So some of the recipes in the book literally take, you know, 10 minutes to make, but it's about just knowing which are the right flavors to work together to really emphasize the flavor of that natural plant, whether it's something like asparagus or mushrooms and really make it taste delicious because food should taste delicious. The second one is about the diversity. Diversity, I think can be a really fun one to get the kids involved. In the book, I've got this 30 plant point counter and it gets people to think how many different plants they've had across the week and add them up and get the kids to maybe choose one or two plants that they want to add to their diet during the week. And again, we've touched on the science of how the diverse plants feeds a diverse bacteria, which then has those widespread effects. I probably won't go through all five because actually that might be too long for people, but you can check out the rest in the book. But the third one uh, that I do want to touch on is this focus on inclusion, not exclusion. Now, I don't know about you, but if I'm told that I can't eat something, I might cut it out for a month or so, but 
I start to fixate on it. After a while, I can think of nothing but eating that particular food. And this is something that I think a lot of people overlook is our relationship with food. So that's what the diversity diet is all about, is looking at the science. And it highlights that actually having a good and healthy relationship with food is really important for long-term commitment and maintenance. So you can include all of your favorite foods. So there's no food off limit at all. It's just about thinking how you can add in extra plants. So one example in the book is my prebiotic Rocky Road. So yes, you can have chocolate, but hey, why don't you add in extra plants like popcorn, which is really high in fiber and things like figs and Brazil nuts, which give it the different textures that we love, like the crunch instead of having the biscuits and you know the chewy texture of the marshmallow have the figs. So making these you know, little switches to add more plants in really is an evidence-based way to be able to comply and follow these principles forever. And that's what we need to do to get optimal gut health, because there's no point just following these fad diets in the short term. You need to be able to follow these things long-term because these bacteria are with us forever if we look after them. It's not just about preventing conditions, but also longevity. It's been shown people who live to 100 in a very healthy way actually have different gut bacteria than those who die earlier. So we are just taking a short pause from the wonderful Dr. Megan to tell you about our sponsor this week, which I'm really excited about because it is a product that I use every single day. I'd heard of Athletic Greens on my friend Rongan Chatterjee's podcast and I thought about it but I hadn't quite taken the plunge until I saw my husband Guy had started taking it and I noticed a massive difference in his energy levels and the quality of his sleep and I was thinking I need me some of that. Higher energy, better sleep. Yes, please. Especially as this was just before Christmas and I was feeling a little tired. Bit of an understatement. So I've been taking it every day since October and my energy levels have never been higher. Well, maybe since becoming a mum. I take it first thing in the morning, right after I've made the girls porridge. It's super simple and it actually tastes quite nice. With one scoop of Athletic Greens, I'm absorbing 70 75, 75 high quality vitamins, minerals, whole food source superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens. There are so many things that I want to tell you about Athletic Greens, and they're sponsoring for a while, so I'm going to get to tell you more and more about it. And we need to get back to the incredible Dr. Megan. But I'll just tell you one of the things that really impressed me, which is that for every purchase, Athletic Greens donate much needed nutritious food to children who need it. And they donated 1.2 million meals to children in 2020. So to make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com slash motherkind. Again, that is athleticgreens.com slash motherkind to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. Thank you to Athletic Greens for sponsoring the podcast, enabling me to keep putting out incredible episodes like this one. So let's get back to it. I know you talked about inclusion, not exclusion, but is there anything that is sort of really damaging to that microbiome and thinking sort of caffeine, alcohol, sugar, or any things that we should think about limiting? So in terms of sugar, this is a really good one to touch on because I think there is a lot of negative connotations attached to sugar. Sugar is certainly not a toxin to the gut per se, because when we eat sugar, so things like sucrose table sugar, actually it's absorbed very high up our digestive tract. So it doesn't actually reach most of our gut bacteria. But the reason why having loads of added sugar is not great for us is because we end up filling up on these high sugar foods. And actually we aren't getting in 30 different types of plants and therefore we aren't getting enough fiber, which comes from the plants to feed our gut bacteria. So it's more about having too much sugar then makes us not be able to feed our bacteria and essentially starve them. So 
having a little bit of added sugar is completely fine. Ideally, it's best, and like I do in my recipes, to get the sweetness from whole fruit because it not only has, you know, that delicious sweetness, but it's got prebiotics and it's got the fiber in it and it's got these other plant chemicals. So you get the whole package of that goodness versus having the refined sugar. But, you know, having a little bit of chocolate is completely fine as long as you think, okay, that's feeding my taste buds. What can I add into that chocolate to feed my gut bacteria as well? What plants can I add in there? And that's a fun one where I've been doing it with my nephew, who's now five and has the widest variety in his diet. And be like, why? And he's from the age of two, I taught him that he's got these trillions of bacteria in their gut. And even if he doesn't like broccoli, his bacteria do. So if he wants to be a good owner of his little pet, he should feed it because it will be very happy and then look after him. So now his palate has evolved. Now he actually enjoys all different types of plants. So I think that is a key one. What about alcohol and caffeine? Alcohol and caffeine. So we know that actually a little bit of red wine, so like 100 mils of red wine, has been shown to have gut health benefits for people who don't have a sensitive tummy. So for the people without those gut issues we spoke about, and that's because red wine contains these things called polyphenols, which feed the gut bacteria. But hey, we know that most of us can't stop at one glass of red wine and we have a lot more. And that's when, you know, if we're having any more than 100, 120 mils, those anti-inflammatory benefits from the polyphenols start to become pro-inflammatory. What that means essentially is our gut lining, which is kind of very strong and only lets certain things from our gut into our blood, actually becomes a bit leaky. And essentially what happens is the bacteria and some other things actually can start to penetrate through and that can have low-grade inflammation effects on the body. Now, before people freak out, rest assured, once the alcohol is metabolized, the gut closes up and then it's all fine. And things like even short-term stress actually makes us have a leaky gut. So leaky gut, it's not necessarily a diagnosis. It's a transient thing, which we all get exposed to. It's more of a side effect that something else is not right, whether it's a stress or too much alcohol. You know, when I go to events, I often have a few too many drinks, but what I do is make sure I've got plenty of plant goodness for the next day prepped, ready to go. So things like my revamped ravioli that I've got in the book, I make that. So then I've got, you know, something that's really high fiber for the next day because the fiber then is broken down by the bacteria and they produce these chemicals, which help strengthen our gut lining. So I kind of is my way of begging for forgiveness the next morning. <laughs> Those who sensitive guts, it's a whole different story because you have a very sensitive gut to start with. Adding alcohol to that actually can make your symptoms a little bit more worse. So you're just being a little bit more cautious of that. And it's very similar with caffeine. Having small amounts of caffeine has been shown to have gut health benefits. But if you've got a sensitive gut, it can increase your stress hormones and that can in turn worsen some gut symptoms. Is the leaky gut from alcohol why alcohol can leave us feeling so anxious the next morning? Is that the link? That could be one of the mechanisms. There are many mechanisms in terms of other things like dehydration, but potentially that low-grade inflammation that can occur from that leaky gut can leave us a bit scattered and a little bit nervous. And like you said, you know, there are so many mechanisms coming out of our gut, like you know, the serotonin's produced in the gut. Although interestingly, the serotonin can't pass that blood-brain barrier that's produced in our gut. So it works, serotonin that's produced in our gut actually works in a different mechanism, but that's just semantics. Um, but it just goes to show that we know these hormones as happy hormone, but actually in our gut, it's more around supporting the gut lining, supporting how the gut moves. So it has different roles. So you talked about your son, Archie and your nephew, and I wondered what can we do to help our children's gut health, breastfeeding, love to talk about that and formula for those people who breastfeeding didn't work, me included. And what can we do as they sort of get older? How important is it that we're nourishing that gut microbiome? It's incredibly important. It actually is important from conception. So when you are pregnant, actually, the studies have shown that the mum's diversity of the plants in her diet actually is thought to have outcomes in terms of the baby's health growing up. In fact, there has even been some research that suggests that six months from conception dad's diet also may have a role in baby's health. So when we made the decision to start trying, I had my husband on a very plant-heavy diet. Again, it was essentially following the diversity diet. It wasn't about plants only because he would not have a bar of that, but it was things like the lasagna, 
taking out a third of the mints and adding in lentils to it. And, you know, he didn't even know that I did that because it just tastes still quite meaty. So it's those small little easy hacks to get those extra plants in. So yeah, through pregnancy, I know it can be incredibly tough, particularly if you are nauseated, but I can send a link. I wrote a blog about some of kind of the quick hacks that you can do if you are feeling nauseated, but to still get in the plants, like have seeded crackers, because I know the dry kind of salty foods can be quite soothing, but also eating some carbs every two to three hours can help settle the nerves. You know, having a little bit of ginger can really help. If you can't get your leafy greens in, I used to blend them in smoothies and put them in like cold egg frittatas. The smell often makes people quite sick as well. So having cold food and all of those sorts of things. So where you can, trying to get in, you know, as many different plants into your diet during pregnancy is really important. And then the delivery method we know has a role to play. We don't live in a perfect world. I know the birthing plans very rarely play out. But, you know, when I was going in, there's some really interesting research coming around vaginal seeding. Uh, Have you heard of vaginal seeding before? Yeah. Yeah. So essentially it's about trying to replicate what the baby would be exposed to if you have emergency C-section. So the research isn't solid enough out there for me to go and tell people that they should be doing this. There are some actual hospitals in London where they have a protocol for vaginal seeding, but there are some risks obviously attached to it. You need to make sure you don't have any, you know, a specific fungi growing in the vagina if you're going to be doing this. But essentially what it is, is kind of swiping your vaginal area as well as your rectum area. And within the first 15 seconds of baby being delivered by the C-section, you then inoculate it over the head. You wipe your vaginal microbes and your rectal microbes. So the hospital that I was birthing actually didn't support the vaginal seeding protocol. So me being a scientist, had the protocol ready, had the swab ready in case there was an emergency C-section, which thankfully didn't happen. So yes, I think that area of research, not ready quite for translation, but is something that I think is really interesting because we know that there is quite stark differences in the bacteria of babies who are born vaginally versus virus C-section. But for those, it's not all doom and gloom. You know, don't worry. There's many things we can do if you have a C-section. You mentioned breastfeeding. Again, having been there now, know how ridiculously hard it is, like out of control, you know, and particularly if you have to go back to work, that adds a whole other level of complexity. But of course, we do know that breast is best because it not only has probiotics, the bacteria in it, but also has a range of different prebiotics, which feed the gut bacteria. But, you know, there are formulas out there which do contain some pre and probiotics, not, you know, I'm going to be completely honest, not diverse, the diversity that would come from the mother's milk, but still a decent amount. So it's about kind of checking the formula. Again, there's not a whole lot of research on it, but thinking about the range of food additives. Some of my research team at King's is looking at specific food additives and suggesting some of them might not have a great effect on our gut health. So particularly I think about that in the baby setting, I'm like, oh, even more concerning to try, yeah, reduce down any kind of additional food additives that they may have in formula. But, you know, again, it's never a perfect world we live in and don't be hard on yourself, I think is a really important thing that I'm learning as a mom. If you have to, you know, go down that route, absolutely fine. Think about the weaning process. And, you know, with Archie, I've loved it um, because obviously I'm so into food, but trying again to get as many different new flavors to his palate before he reaches that stage of being like, eh don't want food. I started to introduce food around four and a half months, which is a little bit earlier than the six month recommendations. Although some of the studies have been showing that actually introducing some of the key allergens like egg and peanuts earlier on, particularly if you've got a history of it, can reduce Bob's risk of having an allergy, a food allergy to those ones. But yeah, trying to get those flavors so that the palate's starting to already learn to like these slightly bitter flavors that maybe a baby who's just used to sweet milk or sweet formula Uh, might not be kind of attuned to yet. And why is it so important with our kids' microbiome? Are there any reasons different? You know, I know we talked about it for us, but are there any reasons that particularly interesting for people to know about for our children around their microbiome? 
Yeah. So it's thought to be the first thousand days of life. No need to start counting, but that first thousand days of life is really important for the baby's microbiome to teach their immune system how to react appropriately to things. So for example, they teach the immune system that the protein in peanuts is completely safe and something you don't need to think is a toxin. It teaches the immune system that, yeah, that flu, that's bad. You need to get the inflammatory markers to help kill that flu. The microbiome is incredibly important for teaching our immune system and regulating it. And the first thousand days of life is thought to be really quite important for that. So some of the autoimmune conditions we see later on in life, we don't see the gut microbiome interventions being effective because we think actually it might be too late because that training period needs to happen when the baby was quite young. So yeah, I think one of the key things is trying to, in a safe way, expose your bub to, you know, healthy microbes as well. So obviously we talked about the plant diversity. So it's feeding the microbes that are in there, feeding them different types of nutrients. And in turn, that grows that diverse range of microbes, but also exposing them to what I call clean dirt. I know at the moment, everyone is very, you know, worried about germs and being ultra hygienic, which is obviously super important, but I just did a post on social actually about that fine balance between being hygienic, washing your hands, being very diligent, but also implementing some strategies to support the microbial diversity. So, you know, do we really need to gel our hands with the alcohol gel 10 times when we're at home? Probably not. You know, there is a risk of overdoing it. And this is where this hygiene hypothesis come from, where we've seen that the rates of different allergies and autoimmune conditions have really started to increase in the past, you know, 30 or so years since we've had this focus on being ultra clean. So we think that being too ultra clean potentially with our younger ones, and in turn, they haven't had that diverse range of gut bacteria to teach their immune system how to act appropriately. So things like, you know, letting them go and play in the garden and getting a little bit dirty is completely fine. You know, that's very different from catching the tube and not washing your hands. You know, it's about kind of the clean dirt. We know that bubs who grow up with a furry pet, like a puppy, also are exposed to more different bacteria and have lower risk of allergies as well. So if you don't have a pet, you know, let them play with their friend's pet, those sorts of things. Yeah. It's just fascinating, isn't it? As you say, with the pandemic, there is such a focus on cleanliness and sanitizing. And are you concerned about the impact of everyone's gut health, particularly children's developing gut health on this focus on being, you know, rightly so? It's been drilled into us, hasn't it? For great reason. How concerned are you about that? I would say moderately concerned because I see with some of my clients, they understand the principle. If they've been in a public place, they need to be really diligent with washing their hands. But actually some of my other clients, they're so concerned about germs because it has been so drilled into us, like you said, for good reason, but they are now gelling their hands within their own home. You know, they're wiping down the bench four times, you know, quite methodically and excessively with with hand gel. And they're doing obviously the same with their kids. So the kids are growing up in environments where they're scared of germs and they are getting a bit fixated on being completely alcohol gelled four or five times a day. That's why I did that post essentially to try spread this information about there is this fine balance here. Let's not kind of overdo it on the front and actually start to do quite a lot of damage to our kids' microbiome when they are, you know, a very early stage of developing theirs. So essentially the takeaway message is, yes, we need to, you know, in public space, we need to, you know, wash our hands in gel, but actually we have to allow some clean dirt, as you call it, to get into our kids' microbiome to help it develop. Absolutely. I think that's really, really important because I see a lot of parents worrying about that and of yeah. course you know of course but I think it's such an important message particularly you know, what I'm really taking home is that first a thousand days as well is training the gut is there anything else that you would want parents to know about that I think playing with other kids as well. So like the puppy thing, I know that a lot of parents because of the pandemic have actually been a little bit more concerned about letting their kids be around 
other kids who might have a slightly sniffly nose and it's okay to get, you know, a mix a little bit of the microbes. It is teaching. Of course, if a kid's got you know really bad illness, then, you know, they shouldn't be playing together, but don't freak out if one kid's got a slightly runny nose. And again, of course, if your kid has a background issue where, you know, they're seeing a healthcare professional about their immune development and it's delayed, then you need to be extra cautious with them. But the general kid population, it's okay to expose them to these sorts of microbes that we're exposed to because what we're seeing is that as soon as kids start to go back to daycare they haven't had exposure to any of these microorganisms and actually then get really quite unwell because their immune systems haven't been trained so it is that fine line of kind of you know trusting your gut using your gut instinct but just keeping in mind that if we are keeping our kids in these bubbles these clean bubbles then actually that might be preventing their gut microbiome from flourishing and developing like everything with motherhood and parenting is trying to hold all these dualities, isn't it? And all these paradoxes and am I doing the right thing? And how do you find that navigating that? Because, you know, clearly you have so much knowledge in this area. Have you found it hard? You touched on you found breastfeeding hard. And I know you've talked about that publicly. Have you managed to take some of that pressure off yourself or have you found that really challenging? Being completely honest, I found the breastfeeding journey really quite challenging and I, you know, really pushed myself hard to keep it up. And I think that's just because, you know, this is my area of expertise. I'm so in tuned like with the science and I just had that massive mum guilt. I think if I went back in time for future babies, I would be like, you know what? I'm not going back to work four weeks after baby's delivered. I'm going to, you know, have more of a gap. But, you know, when you are self-employed, and I'm sure you are the same, it's really hard to take time off, isn't it? And you do put a lot of pressure on yourself. I think what the journey for me has shown me is it probably gave me a little bit more confidence that there's additional things that we can do to really nourish Bub's gut bacteria rather than it being like, oh my God, I can't do this one thing. I can't breastfeed exclusively for the first two years of life, but hey, I can feed Bub diverse ranges of plants to nourish that. They can get a puppy. They can play in, in some clean dirt and those other kind of strategies. So I think it's about not understanding that life is never going to be perfect, but it's about using information and kind of molding everything together to do the best that you can. Yeah, I was the same. I found breastfeeding really hard with my first and pushed myself through. Yeah. And it wasn't good for my mental health and it wasn't yeah. good for my bonding with her. And with my second, I found it hard again. And I stopped after two months and just switched to formula. Yeah. And I have to say, like, for my mental health and my connection with her and how much I enjoyed it. It was like night and day yeah. with that pressure off. And it makes you be a better mum in other ways, doesn't it? You know, you've got more time, maybe go to the park and play with them. Therefore they're going to get exposed to microbes that way. You know, there's all these other things. So yeah, I think I'm definitely of the belief that you do what suits you and there is no right or wrong way of doing it. You're at the forefront of an incredibly fascinating, and as you mentioned, the media have really latched onto this area. So I imagine for you, you're facing tons of opportunity and exciting things and shiny things. And also you've got little Archie who, you know, also needs you and wants you and you want to be with him, I'm sure, every minute of the day. How are you handling that tension? Yeah, look, there was so much tension, I think, in the first six months. I was like how do I juggle the demands of my career mission of trying to share the evidence with as many people as I could? And if I had to say no to a journalist, I was like, so against my mission. Like, I, I can't do that. And then, you know, I would look at Lil Archie and I'd be like, I don't want him to think that mommy's always has her phone out and like start to see mommy always stressed. And because, you know, even when they're young, they can sense what we're feeling. Right. And it also affects things like our breast milk supply and all of that sort of stuff. So it was a big struggle and I would beat myself up about it. I think that's probably one thing I've learned is I can't do everything. And if I'm not happy and healthy, then I'm going to suck at being a mum, and I'm also going to suck at sharing the evidence with people. So no one's going to win. So it's about having boundaries for me. So there were points of the day where now I have exclusively with Archie. So I have like two hours in the morning and three hours in the afternoon where I just block it off. And I just hope that people understand. And if they don't, I'm like, 
too bad. That's just the way the world works because I don't want to sacrifice, you know, my family life to necessarily exclusively helping other people. So trying to find that happy medium. The past three months has been a lot easier. You know, I still get days and particularly with the launch of the book, you know, there is so much media opportunity and I've had to turn things down, which I probably historically would have never thought I would do. And other work opportunities, again, turning them down and they're amazing opportunities. And I would have died to have the opportunity five years ago, but life changes. So it's letting go of my perfectionism, I think, is something that I have learned. I mean, I'm still struggle with it. I'm definitely not perfect, but it's something that I'm learning to deal with a lot better. Yeah, it's so hard. And I'm the same, you know, I think when you have something that you feel incredibly passionate about and lots of opportunity with, it's that real tension. What helps me is this kind of long-term view. You know, like I'm not here for the next year. I've actually got 20 years to talk about this. And actually in five years, the girls will need me less. So maybe that's the time to be doing these things. And I feel like that really helps me. Well, I really um, love that. I'm going to take that away. Yeah, no, that's, thanks for sharing that. I, um, I think that's such a helpful mindset. It's that you're not actually losing out. You're not saying goodbye forever. It's just a short-term thing. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. Otherwise, I think there's the time when our businesses and the message and to some extent, the people out there who need what you've got to say collides with the most kind of needy, quote unquote, time of our children, you know, when they're under five and it can just be, oh, incredibly, incredibly hard. Is there anything else that you wanted to share with everyone before I ask you the last question? I mean, I think we've touched on a lot and I don't want to overwhelm people too much, but I think wherever you are on your gut health journey, as long as you think about just adding in one extra plant each week, you know, that's the minimum to those who are smashing their 30 plant points and, you know, thinking their diversity, you know, having mostly plants, wherever you are on that continuum is completely fine. As long as you're starting to think, okay, there's a lot of evidence, very convincing. This is not a fad. Let me just add a little bit more plants in. And, you know, my body and my microbes will start to pay me back and look after me. I think that mindset is going to really help people. So just one plant a week, I think we can all manage that new plant, extra plant, you know, you'll start to see the benefits. I think that's the most important, isn't it? I mean, my experience of this is that I start to feel different and then that's really motivating because it's like, okay, this isn't just something that I've heard on a podcast or read in Megan's book. This is actually my lived experience now. And I think that is the most powerful thing, isn't it? Absolutely. And that's why I've actually included case studies in the book where people can actually relate to people's experience because there's nothing more powerful than actually hearing it, you know, firsthand. Yes, there may be 50 clinical trials that are showing a benefit, but that's a bit cold. But if we hear about Simon, who's been able to also overcome that challenge or or Hayley, who's had the exact same experience struggling with her weight or her skin and have made, you know, those simple little dietary hacks and now feel so much better. Exactly. Oh, well, everyone needs to go and check out the book for sure. And I always ask the same question at the end, which is if you could give just one gift to all the mothers in the world, what would that one gift be and why? The one gift I think would be understanding that your health is actually one of the most important things that you can nourish. I think a lot of us spend time thinking about our family and we don't think about ourselves enough. So the one, I guess, gift would be to prioritize ourselves and our health. And whether that is, you know, five minutes of mindfulness, it is, you know, five minutes extra in the shop to find a new plant. That five minutes that you're prioritizing your health will then start to enable you to be a better colleague, mom, wife, friend. So that would be the one gift. Thank you so much. It's been an absolute joy. Likewise, Zoe. Thanks for having me. So that was the episode. I hope that you really enjoyed it. As ever, if you did, please consider sharing it with your friends and leaving me a review on iTunes. It really does make a difference to the number of mums that we can reach with the brilliant wisdom 
of the guests I have on. Also, just a reminder about the Family Reset Plan. It's my latest offering to parents. I think that we are living in probably the challenge of our lifetimes. Well, definitely so far. And as parents, we not only have to support ourselves, we also have to support our children. And that is a lot. So the Family Reset Plan is myself and two brilliant psychologists and we give you step-by-step, simple, applicable ways that you can support yourself emotionally to feel stronger, calmer, and therefore to support your children in a different way. It's all grounded in psychology and neuroscience. It's just 25 pounds currently. And if you work for the NHS, it is totally free for you. So check out the website, familyresetplan.co.uk. Take care, I'll see you next time.